Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded and expects to hit 6 million listens by the end of July 2023. We're celebrating this success by recognizing those who have shared the journey with us and giving them the opportunity to contribute to the ongoing success of the shows. By buying a paper copy of the Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a donation to help the ongoing running costs, members of the international Italian wine community will be given the chance to nominate future guests and even enter a prize draw to have lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. To find out more, visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Italian Wine Podcast is delighted to present a series of highlights from the 2022 Wine to Wine Business Forum, focusing on wine communication and bringing together the most influential speakers in the sectors to discuss the hottest topics facing the wine industry today. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central European Time or visit winetowine.net for more information. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, very excited to be here at Wine to Wine and which I thank for inviting me here as a speaker. And today, um, as you can see from the title of today's presentation, this is going to be quite controversial. So um, there's a saying in Chinese, which is no winter lasts forever. But boy, I can tell you, we've been looking to the end of this winter and to the spring for a very long time in China. So we are living through a dif difficult time and, you know, first of all, when you think about China, you really always want to uh, look at the larger picture, look at the big picture. And uh, as some of you may know, uh, last month in October, um, this is what happened in, um, in China. Um, this is the National Congress and the seven men you can see here are the standing committee of uh, China's Politburo headed by presidency, which is the man you see in the middle, and he's very close affiliates. So um, this is a pillar, a pivotal moment, which happens every five years and really sort of sets the trend and, you know, expectation for whatever is going to happen within the Chinese society and therefore the economy for the foreseeable future. So presidency came out as, as once again the winner. He's going to run the country for another five years and all these other six men that you see here on, uh, on this picture are his very close affiliates and you know some people probably say cronies. Um, let's take a quick look at some fundamental data about China. So one and a half billion people, uh, population growth rate is not great at the moment. We'll uh, dive into that later. And GDP per capita is about 17K USD per year. Um, if you look at the GDP closely, uh, there's an interesting uh, trend that you can notice, in, especially if you look at 2020, 2021, 2022. So the blue part of the pie is uh, consumer spend. And as you can see, uh, consumer spend has uh, rebounded in 2021, but is suffering very heavily in 2022. And this is the forecast for the end of the year that was quite optimistic by the World Bank. This, was, this data were released a few months ago. Now, the latest forecast by the World Bank is actually we are looking to a drop in uh, Chinese GDP growth from 8% in 2021 to 2.8% 2 in 2022. 2.8% is actually not bad if you look at if you consider 
you know, Europe, you know, a country like Italy or Germany or Spain. But for China, this is certainly below standard if you compare this performance to their, you know, past 25 years. This is a very important slide and it really tells you uh, a story that, you know, not many, not many people are aware of. Um, China 1990, China 2022. Uh, demographics. Um, one data, which is, to me, it's really scary. Uh, in 1990, the average, uh, the median age of the Chinese population was um, 19 years old. In 2022, it's 39. That means that within the, the last 30 years, uh, the country has aged by 20 years. This is this is a crazy, crazy data that gives you really a, a perspective on China. If you take the U.S., for example, back in 1990, the average age, the median age was 32 years old, and in 2022, it's 38. So within the same amount of time, China has aged twice as fast as the U.S., and this really, um, you know, <laughs> tells a story about what's happening in this country. Uh, so aging population, uh, this is FDI for indirect investment, uh, changes in ownerships of bonds and stocks. Um, the uh, blue lines that you see at the end of the chart, it's, you know, basically outflows of capital from China. So those who can are divesting and trying to get out of China in terms of you know investment and financial decisions, which is certainly not another positive data. Uh, logistics, you know, for those of you who are slightly familiar with, familiar with China, you know that China is running a very strict uh, zero COVID policy, which is really impacting the economy. And uh, this is very evident if you look at logistics and. Um, the the chart shows what happened in a few key cities um, in the um, uh, quarter two uh, of uh, 2022 this year. They had a really, really serious and strict lockdown in Shanghai, which is the red line you see above me. And that's what happens when, when you enact a strict lockdown in China. So virtually, if you have only a few uh, cases of uh, COVID in, in a given district, in a given city, uh, there there's going to be a very strict and immediate lockdown with, you know, everybody's going to get tested. It's super, super serious and strict. And uh, that's what happens to logistics. So, you know, our importers had uh, issues shipping wines in and out of the bonded warehouse they have. Uh, they had issues delivering uh, wines, you know, no manpower to run trucks, no manpower to run logistics. It was a nightmare. Stock markets, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong, Ch uh, Shanghai, uh, the picture really says it all. So I, I don't think I really have to, um, sorry, comment this further. And I want to outline the key challenges that uh, producers are facing also. Uh, well, the key challenges the country is facing at this, at this stage. I think unemployment rate is something that you will never think uh, really um, it's a problem for China. But then if you look at the major cities, unemployment rate at this stage in 2022 is up to 6%. 
if you look at the younger part of the younger segment of the population, so uh, those aged between 19 to 24 years old, the estimates are up to 17, 18%, which is really massive if you think uh, about um, unemployment in other, average unemployment in other countries. Closure of international borders still ongoing. If you want to get into China right now, it's actually very tough. You, you do really need to have your papers in order and you still require to do a fairly long hotel quarantine. And this, of course, you know, is discouraging travel in into China and outside of China. So the lack of Chinese tourism for Asian markets has been a very important feature. And, you know, Chinese are big spenders when they travel. They, they spend a lot on duty-free goods, especially on luxury items. And this is all stopped uh, since the end of 2019. Zero COVID policy. We saw what that does to the economy is certainly something not good. And overall, as you can imagine, consumer sentiment and the propensity to spend uh, has really diminished. So there's less going out and less gathering on average. Uh, on one side, you're uncertain. You know, people are uncertain about their income at this stage. Uh, and uh, there's when you go out, there's always a risk that you may be infected to some extent. And, and that's that's really a major hassle that you have to go through uh, if that happens to you in, uh, in Shanghai or in any other city in China. So uh, what does this imply for the wine market? Um, this is a snapshot that IWSR has painted in uh, about the Chinese wine market, the Chinese alcohol market in 2021. So as we can see, the whole pie is alcohol market. Wine is only about 5% of this. And the latest estimates tells us that this 5% is equal to roughly 289 million cases, 9 liter. Uh, which is, if I'm correct me if I'm mistaken, Andrea, but it's probably around half of the size of the U.S. market. Yeah. The vast majority of these 289 million cases are Chinese wine, anyhow. So that's something that we have to to factorize. Uh, in terms of growth of different categories, as we can see, you know, wine is really lagging behind in uh, in the past five years, and certainly. Uh, also, the outlook for 2021 to 2026 that IWSR is painted is not that positive. Whereas we see that other categories are slightly, you know, uh, growing or, you know, doing fairly better. So let's focus on uh, China wine imports. You know, we, we have seen that uh, the vast majority of uh, um, uh, wine consumed, sold and consumed in China is Chinese wine. So what about imported wine? This is the picture of uh, wine imports in the past five years. So 2017 was probably a time when the market had peaked. And then, as you can see, uh, it's really been downhill from, from there. Um, and if we zero into uh, this data and we look, for example, at wine import value, um, just look at the first line. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, first six months of the year, year-on-year -year data. 19 to 22. Uh, 2020 was uh, was a disaster, minus 30%. You know, 2021, minus 6. So not too bad. Uh, 2022, we are looking at minus 13 again over a very weak 21. So once again, the picture here for imported wine is certainly not that exciting, to say the least.
if we look at volume, you know, the, the situation is even worse. So it's minus 19% uh, on year-on-year uh, -year data. Uh, there are some categories that are actually doing well in this landscape. You know, first and foremost, this uh, Chinese premium Baijiu. Baijiu, for those of you who travel to China. Um, by the way, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been to China? Okay. Okay, that's not too bad. How so, many of you have, have tasted Baijiu? <laughs> You're still alive. That, that's surprising. That's very good. <laughs> that's very good. That's very good. So premium Baijiu is, um, it's almost like, uh, like gold for us in, uh, when times are difficult. That's the sort of commodity that people will uh, look for and invest some funds in if they have a chance to do so. So premium Baijiu, including launch of new premium Baijiu brands and diversion of risk over a, a Baijiu-driven portfolio has been a feature that we have seen happening with many, many wine importers that diversified into spirits and especially into Baijiu. Uh, cognac is an old uh, love of the Chinese mar market, so it's always a very strong category. And then we have seen some growth in uh, specific categories such as craft beer, ready-to-drink items, and sake, which is actually quite popular. What is changing in China? Certainly, thanks to the pandemic, we have seen more consumers drinking at home. So purchasing bottles that actually open and consume at home. And this is actually a positive trend. Uh, patriotic consumption, what does this mean? Um, so there's, uh, there's a plan that the uh, Chinese administration has in place, uh, according to which uh, wines coming from Ningxia, which is a very premium region, I will say, within the Chinese wine landscape, um, Chinese wines from Ningxia will have to hit 600 million bottles by 2035, which is a very ambitious target, but certainly doable. And you can really see that uh, wines coming from this region, if you ever have a chance to taste and try some of the premium brands, are actually quite serious and very well made compared to even five or six, seven years ago. So there's, there's an increase and, and there's a premiumization in, uh, in, uh, in Chinese wines, which is certainly a very interesting trend. In terms of imported wines, we have seen some steps uh, that Champagne has taken. Still a very niche category in China. It's Champagne is not big in China, uh, but you know, starting to be there. Uh, mostly female-driven consumption, interestingly. And Burgundy has really been the star in uh, the Chinese market for the past two years. So uh, Burgundy is really hot in the market at the moment. And these wines are all sold in uh, very small allocated quantities, small offerings. And it's really very hard to find stock of uh, valuable brands. Very interesting trend that we saw happening in uh, places such as Shanghai is the popping up of natural wine bars so you know who will ever think uh, but you know it's somehow natural wines have been very uh, have been popularized by the sommelier community and uh, you know certainly by the trade and it's not uncommon to find uh, wine bars that are themed according to this natural wine concept you know um, very very funky very young crowds you know young and dynamic and actually uh, sustainable business models, which to me, you know, if you had asked me this question, is natural wine ever going to be a thing in China five years ago? I would have said never. But 
uh, they proved me wrong. And certainly for those of you who have uh, had a chance to travel to smaller cities within China, what they call tier two and three cities, uh, it was very hard to find to find places where you, where you could buy and consume wine on the spot, such as wine bars, so wine theme outlets. Uh, you can see um, more of these places popping up now. So even if you know when you go outside of Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, the main city, uh, you get to see more of these uh, wine bars, which are actually uh, a pretty interesting sign. It's a very positive development. Um, so how does the tier city system work? This is quite a, uh, an important feature of China. So uh, most of the consumption historically uh, for imported wine has been along the coast and in tier one cities that are Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. And so traditionally, this is really where uh, most of the wine consumption took place. Uh, the, these cities usually will have higher number of experts, you know, higher income, and certainly more exposure to people who, uh, who, who travel and therefore are more used to Western uh, sort of consumption patterns. Uh, in recent years, however, you know, there's more consumers that we just highlighted in tier two and three cities that are just beginning, just getting close to, to drink and consume wine. In terms of wine importers landscape, uh, you know, I, I think there's a clear trend. Uh, there's a sort of ration, rationalization happening in the market. And uh, we can see that the number of importers, active wine importers, have probably peaked in 2017, 2018, and is now starting to decline. Most of the importers, especially for you, for those of you who are interested in to enter in the Chinese market, most of the importers will be located in the key tier one cities and along the coast of China. That historically has been the more open and propense area to uh, import foreign goods, not only wine, but foreign goods in general. How does distribution work in this market? Uh, well, this is a very complex picture to paint, and really I've tried to do my level best to, to put this on a slide, <laughs> which is very challenging. However, uh, you know, latest, latest estimates for Tier 1, Tier 2 cities will tell us that uh, the, uh, the consumption, the distribution is actually quite spread out and well-balanced between what we call on-premise and what we call off-premise. Um, in terms of the on-premise, you have specialists which are really similar to, uh, you know, specialized on-premise players you will find in markets such as US rather than UK or Italy. Um, and then uh, these will serve uh, tier one cities um, hotels, international restaurants, uh, fine dining, Chinese fine dining, where wine is widely consumed, uh, and hotel with national contracts. And then you have, the off-premise is much more of a complex picture. So uh, it's really hard to summarize this in, into a few words, but let's say uh, wholesales are very important. And actually one of the key features of managing your distribution successfully within China is really making sure that you have enough, you can control your value chain you know when you control your value chain and that you allocate enough margin along the value chain to make every single layer happy. And a major disruption in this system is uh, due to e-commerce. So e-commerce is actually something which is, you know, usually always, always mentioned by the media as some sort of, you know, new route to market, uh, 
which is disruptive and and uh, can't really work out for uh, you know uh, specific product categories such as Italian wise. But you know more often than not, uh, this has proven. Uh, to be quite far from reality and at the end of the day you know most of the e-commerce platforms will be uh, will can actually cause you problems if you don't have a way to control pricing and exposure uh, of your key flagship wines in this specific channel we could really write a book about this this, this topic alone what are the latest trends in China? On a consumer level, uh, we can certainly see a rise of a new audience. So uh, younger, newer consumers uh, whose knowledge becomes uh, more evolved and sophisticated. Uh, it's a country where probably female drinkers are uh, on the rise and quite important. It's not uncommon to see many uh, uh, female drinkers if you ever enter into a wine bar or you know, a restaurant where wine is widely served. Young professionals who are you know, taking and increase interest in wine. Wine education is really big in China. It's one of the main markets for WSET, for example. And uh, it's, um, it's, it's um, you know, wine education is a hobby. It's also, you know, highly sought after as a certification if you're interested to develop a career in the trade. Wine tourism, until 2019, which was, you know, uh, the time when Chinese could still move around freely without the restrictions, you know, wine tourism to key uh, iconic wine region had been really widespread and instrumental in creating new ambassadors especially wine of australia had been really good in promoting wine australia uh, and uh, had been really good in promoting their regions in terms of you know attracting interest and attracting travelers to uh, to visit their regions and to uh, promote their brands so overall I, I would say that we can see an increasing sophistication uh, by Chinese consumers who tend to be these days, you know, more attentive to origin and a sense of place. And this is actually a very good news for us when we see ourselves as uh, terroir wine producers in Italy. On the trade, we can see some trends for sure. You know, we mentioned online. Uh, so certainly e-commerce, as we mentioned, is quite disruptive and it's becoming very widespread. Uh, logistics in China, <clears throat> And until 2019, you know, before COVID hit the country, it was really smooth and really easy and costs were actually quite low. So it's really easy for an e-commerce player in China to develop one case of wine or even one bottle of wine anywhere in the country. Um, we can now see, and this is something that is quite interesting, I was talking to uh, a few of our business partners in Shanghai last week, and they mentioned this point. Uh, we, they see a rationalization, I will say, of uh, retail pricing and margins across the country. So the, uh, the markups of some player are getting more reasonable, and hopefully wise is going to be slightly more uh, you know, affordable to a larger part of the population, which is still a niche in China. I never forget this. And certainly uh, digital marketing. So we always talk about e-commerce, but we often forget uh, that the possibilities that we now have thanks to technology to interact and to engage Chinese consumers are actually very, very important. And very often... Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. This will entail engaging with uh, Chinese uh, promoters that we often call KOL, Key Opinion Leader or, or, or Influencer. 
And uh, some of these KOL have been quite instrumental in uh, making sure that some of the brands are, you know, really well received in the market. And uh, some of these achieve some commercial success. When you look at this uh, digital marketing picture, it's very important to be aware of how uh, who the main players are in China and how they interact with each other. So uh, we don't really have time today to to, dive, to deep dive into this, but you know you should know that there are some platforms where you can promote the brand, some other platforms that are more of a you know sales or retail avenue for your brands and. Um, uh, they all have different models. You have generic marketplaces such as JD, uh, Tmall, and then you also have wine specialists, wine, vertically integrated wine um, uh, retailers such as Yes My Wine or or a few more. And WeChat, which is you know the the low, if you if you if you deal with China, you will certainly be familiar with with WeChat. You cannot survive without a WeChat account in China. So WeChat is certainly a a very important tool in order to make sure that you have your nice, you know, business card or let's say presentation for the Chinese market available. Uh, it's your really, it can really be your brand face on the market. So what it takes and what sort of brands can be successful in China? I think there's a few key elements that your brand will need. First of all, a serious brand history, something real, something consumers can relate to. A clear value proposition so where is your brand position and why and how? Uh, it's very important to control your price system within China. So you have to be familiar with concepts such as, uh, you know, Chinese value chain. And uh, visual appeal is very important, especially for those brands that don't really have a long history. Uh, things such as packaging, uh, you know, pack types, weight of the bottle, uh, color of the capsules. You know, it's there's no detail that must uh, all details must be checked and this is a very important uh, matter for Chinese consumers and trade uh, awards certainly help so if you manage to get you know good scores and good international recognition by international media um, uh, it's certainly a good element and certainly you know once Chinese will be able to travel again uh, granting them an experience a 360-degree experience at the winery is certainly something which is always very appreciated. This has been very challenging in the past two years because they couldn't travel. So some of the uh, wineries uh, that have been really working hard on uh, on uh, new media and new retail tools have been uh, trying to develop uh, new experiences. You know, for example, we have been working on uh, virtual reality, which is something which is pretty cool. So. Our strength, you know, if your brand has what it takes, is, is your brand equity. Uh, the weaknesses in the market are producers, especially Italian producers, are heavily fragmented. Um, on average, we have a very limited understanding of the Chinese market, which is always changing. The only constant thing in China is change. And so far, there's still a very limited demand for premium and super premium wines, which are really the bread and butter of uh, Italian wines, especially, but also of some some uh, some other uh, you know key iconic regions from uh, from all over the world. Opportunities: we certainly see this trend for uh, uh, wines with a sense of place, terroir wines. Um, we spoke about natural wines. Uh, we are seeing a decline on cheaper wine imports, which I personally think is a very good sign. 
uh, and there's a temporary gap which is left by the decline of Australian wines. Australian wines have been imposed very high punitive tariffs in the past two years and and that is going to stay for the next probably three to four years. So this is a time when other players such as France, Chile, Italy really have to try to do their very best to, to capitalize and to grab that market share. And lastly, the development of second and third tier cities that we, uh, we discussed. Uh, in terms of threats, you know, you do have some spirits categories. You have RTD, which are competing really, really heavily, competing fiercely to, uh, to substitute wine, uh, especially among younger consumers. This is certainly one of the key uh, challenges and the key worries that we face. And there's already a very large number of producers, brands, and SKU on the market. So uh, it is really a time when importers and trade are trying to rationalize and narrow their efforts on a, on a smaller number of items, which will make it difficult if, you, if your brand is not in China yet to access the market. And certainty, the, uns uh, <laughs> the uncertainty in, uh, in shipping and logistics, which is you know, something that we experience all over the world, but even more so in China, uh, make it quite hard to plan long-term. So concluding today's presentation, I will say, uh, if you want to invest in China, you have to think, first of all, is this the best time? Uh, I personally think that March 2023, which is the time when the National Congress uh, election process is going to be over, maybe a timing when things can actually start to open up and change in China. So uh, let's keep our attention span on that. Uh, the decline of cheaper wine imports may point to a new era where maybe possibly premiumization will be possible and consumers will be looking for more interesting wines with more character, identity and a sense of place. And very important, uh, what I call the signification of the wine market. Um, it's gonna be a market which becomes more local rather than international. So having uh, some intermediaries or some of your own staff that is familiar with the lang Chinese language, for example, or Chinese culture is going to be a key. Um, it's gonna be a key component of your um, commercial team structure. You know, be, it could, that could be something that if you have enough resources, you know, you could possibly afford to have somebody within the winery that can do that or you can either outsource this to agencies or to third-party intermediaries or agents who can help you with that. But it's certainly going to be key to do your communication in Chinese language. You know, it's English will only get you that far. So it's very important for you know each single one of you who wants to crack and try to get into the Chinese market to think about this with care. Uh, curation and effort and try to design and implement your own go-to market plan and you know we opened today's presentation with a with a you know uh, no winter lasts forever change so I'm going to close it with another one of my favorite Chinese saying which is how should duomo how should duomo is uh, the road to success is very long and painful and I think this really sums up China in a, in a nutshell. Thank you, everyone.
thank you, Alberto. And 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 despite uh, all the, the green pictures you you are describing, uh, I think it's still worthwhile. I... Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So I want just to support Alberto with our personal uh, experience into the Chinese market and uh, um, basically. And give a few pieces of advice if if uh, that could be possible. Um, basically, when we approached China, we went by the book, and I think that was really the mistake to go by the book. So, we did the good guys. We found the national importers for China. We went to talk to online people, and we felt like our portfolio, the way it was, would have worked in China, and then. Uh, for a couple of years, we didn't have anybody on the ground because we felt that we could follow the Chinese market from Italy. So going by the books was a mistake. In fact, in the years, we had to change basically our approach and going back and saying, all right, the national uh, distri distributors doesn't work for us, at least for our model. So we went local. We started to find regional distributors rather than a national guy. Finally, Alberto came on board, so we had somebody in the ground. We had to modify completely our marketing and our packaging. There is a world difference between what we sell in the rest of the world and what the Chinese really like. So I'm sure the ones of you that travel to the Chinese market knows the story. <laughs> Big bottles, flashy packaging. Um, this is what really works in China. And then we have to approach completely in a different way. So going by the books is not the best solution. You have to be very flexible to approach Chinese market and be ready to change continuously and being continuously flexible if you really want to be successful. The message across is um, because I hear it and we have our own frustrations in all these years. Um, you have to figure that we started the Chinese market back in 2008. That was our first shipments to China. And between then and now, we have been through different frustrations. And I, But I, my hope is that we can't quit. You know Murphy's Law? I'm sure many of you have read Murphy's book. You know, you can't quit, you can't win, you can't lose. So this is pretty much what we're facing in China. But we can't quit, you know. Chinese, to me, despite some of the numbers we have seen, is going to become effectively a big market for us. And I'm talking more now for Italian producer, but I think it's going to be a big market for all of us, all producers. We need to be patient. We need to change our way we approach China. We need to understand the culture. We need to have people on the ground, and 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 we need to be. We need to trust the market. I remember because I'm old enough. Uh, some of the frustrations we had had in other markets. But the difference was, and I'm talking especially for Italian producer, that in those markets, everybody was very motivated, everybody was believing in the markets, and many of us put a lot of efforts, a lot of investments into those markets, which eventually, after many years, they paid off. So with China, I don't see any difference. It's frustrating, it's difficult, you have cultural barriers, you have language barriers, and, and all sorts of practical problems, logistics, you know, pricing, distribution is all there. But we can't quit. 
China is going to be, for me, a very promising market. And Italy, unfortunately, has only 6% market share. Uh, it's up to 10 now, but... Up to 10. Okay. Up to 10, So, but you have to consider that Australian wines are gone. So yeah, the, the pie is much smaller. And therefore, this is why some yeah, of the other players... Yeah, but I don't think Italians yeah. are taking advantage of the Australian. It's more probably Chilean and other countries. However, I, th I still think it's a market that is worthwhile to explore. So my, my really recommendation is don't quit on the Chinese market. Don't be frustrated. I know it's frustration. I know it's a lot of investments. I know it's difficult. But don't quit because eventually... Is going to pay off and to be honest italian wines has been successful everywhere i see no reason why they shouldn't be successful in china as well so i think we just need to work harder and don't lose hope so alberto never show these numbers again would you <laughs> yeah if if you have any questions let's go to question time thank you i don't know if you have the chance recently to look at into um, price category if there is any how price category mm. different price category are uh, are moving because uh, like for example talking to online which seems uh, promising to many market and our mm. company for example invested in the in the online but then we know that uh, most of the business is uh, i don't know below 50 rmb or below 80 rmb mm. but in uh, in retail how are the different price category mo moving and until uh, which price uh, the the consumer is uh, is open to to afford a bottle of wine of imported wine? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it really depends on, the, on what kind of retail. So uh, when you when you're looking at different avenues, you know, you, what you're saying about e-commerce is certainly right. Uh, once your wine is priced above, I will say a hundred, a hundred and fifty RMB, which is the equivalent of what. Um, 17 euro 19 euro um, then your potential uh, your potential interest is you know vastly inferior to um, what the majority of wine in that channel sells for it's um, so on average wines that are selling really well on that marketplace on e-commerce marketplace are cheaper and and by the way, you know, we have a very similar experience. You know, we have uh, invested quite heavily, uh, not heavily, but I will say we invested time in trying to build a more, uh, um, more rational um, e-commerce presence, you know, through flagship stores and that sort of thing on JD, for example. Uh, but the results, I will say, are still, are still quite not to the level that we would have hoped for. Uh, on traditional retail, it's really, well, you know, the same wine can, can cost, uh, can can end up at very different shelf price according to the, the venue, the location, the retail outlets, whether if it's a tier one or tier two city. But I will say that the main commercial opportunity for the wines that we are hoping to um, uh, to push at this stage will be between 200 RMB to 350, 400 RMB, and uh, that's you know what most. I will say, if you look at Italian wines, especially what Italian wine connoisseurs are ready to pay for, uh, that sort of the um, the target. But I'm sorry that today I didn't prepare a slide with the uh, with the um, uh, breakdown by segment. But that's certainly a very interesting question. Then you know if you just look at 
the global picture. Uh, historically, in China, wines that are uh, it's it's a very polarized market. So, uh, if you if you picture uh, your um, um, your uh, let's say um, if you divide wines by by price bracket, and then uh, probably currently the market is is very large at the entry range. Although we think this is shrinking. Uh, according to the data that we that we showed on on the charts, and it's also very large at the top. So things such as Grand Cru Classé, uh, rather than iconic wines from regions of the world such as um, you know uh, Barolo, rather than Napa, rather than Margaret River, um, which are priced 1,000 RMB and above, or even 1,500 or you know more than that. Uh, we see iconic brands doing really well. Um, so currently for us, for our wine group at the moment, what's really dominating the market is um, the icon brands, the icon stars that we have in the group. And at the same time, uh, we we have a, we can see that there's an opportunity at the lower end, uh, but we don't really tap into that. And I think for Italian brands, it's very difficult to tap into sort of entry range market for certainly for brands or for you know serious wine producers that's difficult if you're a battling negotiation that it's a different matter then you can really work on the sort of uh suggest a retail price point 50 rmb and, <laughs> and 200 you know but for a serious brand that's that's a that's a difficult price proposition if you look at Chinese wines themselves, uh, Chinese real brands, you know, a good bottle of wine in China will cost you no less than 180 RMB. And then if you want to have some good stuff, you probably have to go up to 250, 300 and above. And that's when you start to get like a solid sort of quality. And I believe that's the sort of price point that a real wine connoisseur is ready to pay for, for a daily wine. Welcome. Be aware when you approach the online people that you probably have experienced that yourself, but you have to be very careful with the double-edged swords. You know, sometimes online people, and it happens to us in China a couple of times, we're dumping price just to attract attrition and, uh, and, uh, and steal datas, and that has damaged us enormously because you can't imagine our traditional distributors seeing online those kind of prices was quite scary and it was very hard to fix so be careful when you talk with the online people you were um, explaining in the presentation that patriotic consumption is also growing mm -hmm. uh, we know that uh, Chinese people are becoming more and more educated and mm. focused on terroir, wines from terroir could we imagine uh, the future as a categorization of terroir Chinese terroir and uh, still an increase of the patriotic consumption mm -hmm. um i think yeah this is a trend which is certainly something that 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 we see and um and i'm not an expert by any by any measure on on chinese wines uh but you know if you talk to people in that trade that are more familiar with uh, with with those sort of um items you know you do start to and you do start to see a, really a sense of place coming through, and and uh, you even uh, probably we are not at the stage where we define they define themselves, you know, by crew, uh, by individual sites. Maybe some of them do, uh, 
but at this stage, you know, um, some um, uh, some of the Chinese brands that have been investing heavily in their own facilities and vineyards are really trying to up their game. And I think this is going to be a trend to stay. So uh, probably not such a threat in the sense that um, uh, if you look at wine production in China, it's it's very hard to be financially sustainable still. So you do you do need big shoulders and, and large investments, especially to build your distribution. Um, so I don't really think this this is a menace, a threat in the short term, but maybe in the long term, who knows? You know, things can change. But you know, if you look at OEV data on, on Chinese vineyards, uh, you see that the large Chinese players are actually divesting and are getting out of great production. So the mass market Chinese, uh, uh, let's say, grape market for uh, for um, for daily drinking wine production is not so financially viable. Uh, but certainly Chinese brands who are positioned at the premium end of the scale will continue to do well and to and to attract more interest even outside of China. There is a growing, there, there's a very large community of overseas Chinese at the diaspora across Asia, uh, who is quite, quite, once again, uh, I wouldn't say nationalist, but you know they love China, and they they show, they like to show their, uh, you know, um, sometimes you know icon wines or you know icon products of their uh, motherland. So, I think this is a trend which is going to stay, uh, and it's not only on wine. Um, I think when we opened the presentation talking about politics and, you know, the narrative that the government in China is really pushing for is um, you do feel that is more nationalistic driven. There, there is more of a, a sense of you do really need to instill confidence and perhaps the... Um, awareness you know that you know your motherland your your people are the best in the world and that you know it's 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 really more of a cultural uh aspect that we could be discussing for hours and hours and it's it's uh, certainly something which you you must consider yeah you have to consider that china on the paper is the fourth largest vineyard worldwide with more than half a million hectares. However, most of the grapes are table grapes used for food, you know, table grapes. And you have to consider also that uh, probably is changing now, but at the entry level, uh, a lot of wines was blended with bulk wines coming from Europe, Spain, uh, Chile, South, a lot from Chile, Argentina and so forth. So. When you drink an entry-level Chinese wines, uh, maybe it's not really Chinese wines. There is a little bit of everything in it, mm. so you have to be—you have to play in a different ground, really. Please, I think you know. If, if, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, how the domestic wine production impact the market, but I think you already kind of expanded on that, articulated a little bit now with the last questions. But my big question would be: What's the impact of counterfeit wine, fake wines, or? you know, concentrated wines on the market for... Uh, yeah, um, I think the impact of counterfeit wine is something that if you're uh, really positioned in, uh, in in a very ultra-luxury premium niche, and if you are, for example, a, a GCC trader, 
and uh, or you know um, if your um, if your brand is really super well known, uh, but there's only there's only a handful of those brands in China. Uh, you're looking at the premier Clutlase, for example. You're looking at you know some of the second growth. You're looking at uh, some icon wines from uh, from Australia for one specific brand. Then that still has some sort of impact. You know, it's it's not gone. It's gonna be there forever. Uh, I don't think that the commercial impact is is so important at this stage. I mean, we've seen you you there's always going that factor is always gonna be there. Uh, but I think it's probably over covered and overplayed by international media um, to some degree. Um, I don't know if this answers your question. Yeah, I think for, for average brands, for those that have some sort of success in China, uh, it's not really that, um, it's not really a problem. Uh, it will take, my take on this is, you know, what the day I will see my wines, our wines, um, counterfeit in China, that's going to be a sign that uh, I probably have done a very good job and our brand is so successful that, <laughs> you know, people will start copying that. Um, but what I have seen at a, you know, talking about our experience. Um, we, I, we, we had our share in Verona yeah. of counterfeit wines, especially Amarone, that probably, as you know, is very popular in China. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even done in China. It's done in Italy by sometimes Chinese people, sometimes other people. Uh, it's hard to put a value or uh, a disruptions of the business on that. One, it was says that 30% of the wine and spirits around China was counterfeit. I don't believe in that numbers. I think it's too excessive. But unfortunately, you know, it only takes one scandal or you know let's say uh, article that is you could ruin uh, you could ruin your job for you know 10 years trying to establish an appellations or a brand so definitely it's something that is uh, mm. to look after yeah i think you have you have a very good point um rather than the counterfeit wine you know it's more about i think some disputable choices that some of the producers across some region have taken over the years. And uh, we have seen wines coming out of Italy mimicking names of appellation, mimicking names of famous producers, uh, just with a different letter or, you know, with a different small logo, you know, uh, uh, dot on the eye missing. And this is our own doing. So this is not the Chinese doing this, you know, it's, it's our, our neighbors or, uh, you know, other wineries around, around Italy or around uh, other, uh, other countries that have been playing a foul game as far as I'm concerned. We have been fighting for years and spending a lot of money as a consortium della Valpolicella to fight this. And I'm so impressed by the level of creativity in trying to mimic the names of Amarones or Ripasso. I've seen pretty much everything and it's it's very hard to fight them, you know, because you have to go to court, you have to wait years before you have a, you have a, a feedback. So it's, it's really hard to fight. We have another question, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is the role of OCM funds in building a market for Italian wines in China? Thank you. 
can we stop the presentation here? <laughs> no, thank you for uh, for raising that point. It's it's a, it's a very articulate uh, subject. Uh, I think you know it really depends on how that is managed. For uh, for our job has been quite instrumental to 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 make good use of those those funding. Um, I think it could be a terrific tool and avenue as long as you have your proper planning in place and you're doing real activity activation on the market, which is not always the case. You know, once again, I don't know, Andre, if you want to add up anything to 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 that point, but again, we have seen uh, we have seen a lot of different. Uh, Bad case scenario on OCM fundings. As a matter of fact, European Community and even the Minister of Agriculture in Italy has become, and the regions, because they're all part of the OCM schemes anyway, and you have to report to all of them. You know, first of all, for us company, to work on OCM is becoming increasingly more difficult and complicated and with a lot of bureaucracy. Um, and secondly, I think uh, in the past, unfortunately, some of the funds were not spent in a positive way let's put it so and that's why now is 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 becoming more and more difficult to work on ocm funds um we don't even know what the european community is going to do with that to be honest uh there is a lot of discussions at the level of the agriculture commissions whether to bring back the funds or part of the funds to support farmers rather than support markets you know the question is on the table so we need to understand where we're going to go but yes theoretically ocm is a great help and support for company uh, as long you know it's the money is going to be spent in a correct way but um, we have seen a little bit of everything there too yeah so it's a mixed batch last question oh, it's a good question so <laughs> um, my personal advice uh, and then I come to a question is to um, follow a lot the politics because in China, politics is very important. For example, Guo Chao. People will like to drink something that respects their culture, China culture, until now has been done very little. So first of all, and then for example, KUC or KL, you will see they will disappear because the government decided so. So the government counts very much. And then this also comes to logistic. Cheetah numbers, quarantine containers, container have to quarantine two weeks. So the logistic is very important. My question is, how did a very famous winery like Sartori adapt to the market? Because you have to adapt to the market. You have to make products a Chinese drink. You don't have to bring whatever products you have. So adapt to the market. What did the Sartori very famous? Well, the, the first mistake we made because we had we had no experience at all on the Chinese market and we rely mostly on our distributors then, let's say importers, which by the way was owned by biggest company in China, Kofco, one of the largest and by the way owner of Great Wall, number two winery, second largest winery, Great Wall, I would say. So we thought we got it, you know. We are in bed with Kafka. We are in bed with the owner of Great Wall. They have a zillion salesmen around in the market. They are in every supermarket. Bingo, you know, forget about it. <laughs> we, we, it was the most difficult exercise uh, we run because 
Kafka was consistently changing people, so we didn't have a point of reference. And when they place the first order, they include also a couple of white wines, respectively a Pinot Grigio and Soave. And we didn't know <laughs> that Chinese market is what, 95% red wine? Okay, let's say 80% and you have sparkling wines and so And so we made a mistake in the mix. And to be honest, before we cleaned the inventory of the white wines, we had to wait three, four years, something like that. You know? I, I think it's still there. It's still there, yeah. it's still there, it's still in the market. So first of all, we had to adapt the portfolio to what the Chinese really drink, which is red wines, but not just any red wines, it's big wines, Amarone-like, Ripasso-like, uh, a Passimento anyway kind of style. So we had to focus and change our portfolio in that direction. And then we came out with a couple of wines under the Passimento style, which is very successful in China. So we had to adapt. We had to adapt our packaging. You know, our packaging, our standard packaging is too classic. Uh, so we had to adapt that too. And then eventually being flexible in, uh, in our model of distribution, using different people in the different regions. But we had to revamp and re rewind and all red. I think we can close here, Andrea, because we are going overboard. So we don't, we don't want Stevie to come here and no, kick us out. <laughs> so you have my contacts here. If anybody wants to get in touch, uh, WeChat, uh, LinkedIn, email, you know, feel free to, to drop a line. Thank you so much for being with us today. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.